Klopp was a baby barn owl. And he lived with his mummy and daddy at the top of a very tall tree in the middle of a field. Plop was fat and fluffy. He had a beautiful heart-shaped ruff. He had enormous round eyes. He had very knackety knees. In fact, he was exactly the same as every baby barn owl that had ever been. Except for one thing. Plop was afraid of the dark. But you can't be afraid of the dark, his mummy said. Owls are never afraid of the dark. This one is, Plop said. But owls are night birds. <laughs> Plop looked down at his toes. I don't want to be a night bird. I want to be a day bird. You are what you are, his mummy said firmly. Yes, I know, Plop said. And what I are is afraid of the dark. This is what 10 years of listening to the same cassette tape every night gives you. The owl who was afraid of the dark was my constant companion. I reckon for about a decade of my childhood, um, I used to listen to it to try and help me get to sleep. I've stopped telling the story now in case some of you are thinking that this is like a Shawshank style narration about plop. Um, so I listened to this every single night on cassette tape, shows my age, and um, it was read by Maureen Lippman, in case you're interested, did all the same inflections just then, and I assume it was to help me also to, to stop being afraid of the dark, and clinicians do still recommend this story if you do have um, any fears of the dark. And it is a cracking story. It's about Plop. So he's um, afraid of the dark. And he's a baby barn owl, obviously. And he's a night bird. So he can't be afraid of the dark because that's when he's literally supposed to be awake. And so what happens is, is Plop goes on this wonderful journey where um, he meets seven different characters who tell him all different things about the dark, um, which are good about the dark. And he finds out that actually dark is not so bad after all. So he meets, um, he meets a little boy um, who's looking forward to bonfire night. And the little boy says, dark is exciting. And then Plop sees his first firework display. Plop meets um, an old lady. And she says, dark is kind. It helps me forget my gnarled old hands and think about my husband. It's really nice. And um, quite deep for a four-year-old as well, like thinking about darkness and grief but um but I enjoyed it and then he finds out that dark is necessary dark is whatever I said fun that's the boy scout who says that dark is um beautiful that's Orion the black cat says that and he's got like a southern accent so he goes like dark is beautiful and um, they've all got different accents and it's really good and um so essentially he finds out all these wonderful things about the dark and by the end Plop accepts that he is indeed a night bird and he learns not to be afraid of the dark anymore and he decides that dark is super and that's how he said it as well um I, I could recite the rest of the story but you know we want to go home at some point and it is an hour long um <laughs> I think many of us are still afraid of the dark not that kind of dark that Plop is afraid of this is a different sort of darkness. This is the kind of darkness that isn't really fun or exciting. And it never seems necessary or kind. We are afraid of a different sort of darkness. We may have overcome our fear of the dark at night, but our fears of emptiness, of loneliness, of depression, 
of despair, of death, of being nothing, of being alone. That's the kind of darkness that isn't so easy to learn not to be afraid of. And I'm not trying at all to spread fear. And I'm not trying to say that we should embrace this kind of darkness or, or um, you know, on, on the kind of the other end of the spectrum. But our story today that we're looking at in this life of Elijah is one about the, the real dark places for ordinary people living extraordinary lives. This is a story that raises unanswerable questions about suffering, despair, running away, disappointment, losing faith, mental health. There is so much we could talk about um, today. And the further that we dig into the story of Elijah, there's hours and hours and hours of debate and difficult conversations. And it was so hard to, to really hone down to what it is that I feel God wants to speak to us about today. Because we will not do all those questions justice today. So let's delve into what God wants to say to us. But first, I just want to ask you, and I'm just going to pray as well, that we look out for each other. Our story today is not an easy one to hear. It's not an easy one to tell. And it's not an easy one to learn from. So let's just look out for each other on the journey. Be aware that other people's life journeys may look very different from your own. So I'm just going to pray now, and I'd love it if you could join me and just pray for one another as um, I speak this over you. Um, God, I pray that you would speak to each of us through this story today. Would we hear from you and learn in a specific and personal way? Would every person here with me now know your great kindness and your patience for them individually? And would you make us a family and a community that loves one another, just as you love us through the dark places of life? Would we do this together, God? Amen. So we've been exploring the story of Elijah together over the past few weeks. And um, he was an ordinary man living an extraordinary life through his faith in God. He was a real person um, who lived thousands of years ago, and his life is documented in the Old Testament of the Bible. I want you to turn, if you've got your Bibles with you, I want you to turn to your Bibles, or you can get it on your phone, or it's going to come up. Oh, no, it's not going to come up on the screen yet. Um, if you've not been here for the past few weeks, oh, my life, you've got a lot to catch up on. Um, so um, I want you to just turn to the person next to you or find someone near you who has been here in the last few weeks. Um, and um, I want those of you who've, who've been here to give the other a 30-second recap of what we've heard about Elijah so far, because there's a lot to catch up on. We can't cover it all. So I want you to turn to each other and talk about the king, the ravine, the widow, the mountain. Even if you were all here, let's just turn to each other and remind each other of the story. So you've got 30 seconds. Turn to each other, give each other a recap. Go. Okay, on that note, let's turn to the next chapter in the story. So if you've got your Bibles ready, do open them. We're in 1 Kings, chapter 19, verses 1 to 9. It's going to come up on the screen for you. And Ben is going to read to us. Now, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow... I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. 
he came to a broom tree, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Thanks, Ben. Okay. Let's walk through this passage together. As I think there's a lot that goes on. Ahab, king of Israel, tells his queen Jezebel about Elijah's great victory on Mount Carmel in front of the whole nation, the whole nation of Israel. Now, Jezebel was not keen on this, as you may have picked up. In fact, she hated Elijah because he had overcome the false prophets of Baal, who's a false god, on Mount Carmel, and she was a big fan of Baal. So she's threatening to kill Elijah and make him like one of the slaughtered prophets of Baal. But notice, she doesn't just go ahead and and kill him, like she has done. If you read um, earlier chapters in Kings, she just kills and slaughters hundreds and hundreds of the prophets who follow the God of Israel, the one true God. She doesn't dare do that to Elijah. She just threatens him because the whole of Israel is now on his side and worships the one true God with him. And so Elijah has proven himself to be far too dangerous to actually try and get rid of because he's shown that the all-powerful God of Israel is backing him. And so God can send fire or rain at Elijah's words. So Elijah's kind of untouchable in this situation. He's extraordinary to the point of being someone to be feared by the ruling queen of Israel. She doesn't dare touch him. But it's worth remembering that there are plenty of things in life that cannot kill us, but they can scare the life out of us. There are words and threats and lies that they don't wound us physically, but they stop us from actually living. Next verse. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. So hold on, we've just been sat talking about the extraordinary life of Elijah and the massive things that he accomplished, which are nearly unimaginable for us. I bet you couldn't even fit in all the miracles that, he, that happened for Elijah in your like, short recaps to one another. And in this series, we've even cut out, yeah, we, yeah you couldn't. And um, in this series, we've even cut out certain miracles just because if we were to go through every single thing that happened in Elijah's life, we'd be here for a really, really long time. Like there's um, the fact that Elijah called back rain to the land after three years of drought, which he also called um, the same man who hours before um, stood before, just imagine, an entire nation, which is unbelievable that that a whole nation gathers in one place. Um, But he stood before them, and all of them at that point 
didn't like him. They wanted to get rid of him. And he stands before, as well as them, 450 false prophets of Baal who could actually try and get rid of him. This same guy runs away at the threat of one woman who can't even get near him. This doesn't seem to fit. Elijah seems really ordinary at this point. So let's keep reading to figure out what's going on to change his attack so dramatically. When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. This isn't just someone having an off day or a moment of uncertainty. These are the words of someone totally at the end of themselves. This is utter despair. This is depression. And for some of you, this might seem really uncomfortable and alien, and you couldn't even imagine saying those words. But let's remember that the Bible isn't a Greek tragedy. It's not an opera. This is a real man crying out his deepest, most honest, most dark thoughts and worries and fears to God. And I say this with all caution and care, again, not saying that we all need to go into that place, but some of us need to take a moment to think what it would be like to utter those words and to mean them. And there's some of us who feel really well acquainted, too well acquainted with this place. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. I am no better than someone who is dead and gone. We can't and we shouldn't rationalise or reduce this moment of darkness. It's like depression. It's not something we can trace back and kind of find three steps that led to it because being in this place of darkness is something that we can't fully understand or explain. That's why we refer to it as the darkness, because we can't see in it. We can't pick it apart and make it something else. But I believe God has given us this insight into this particular moment of Elijah's life to show us that this is not a smear or a blemish on an otherwise extraordinary life. Elijah's very human, very ordinary struggle in the darkness isn't an exception the extraordinary life of faith. I'm not, it, it is an exception, it isn't an exception to an extraordinary life of faith. And perhaps it's actually part and parcel of an extraordinary life of faith. I'm not saying it's a rite of passage and that we should try to feel like this. I'm not saying that it, we should feel like this, not at all. What I'm saying is that living an extraordinary life of faith in God does not immunize us from pain or suffering or walking through the valley of the shadow of death. In fact, Jesus says that in this world you will have trouble. One day, a day is coming when God will wipe every tear and every last bit of pain from this place, from us. He will take away suffering. Justice will roll out. Peace will roll out. 
But right now, in our lives, right now, before the end of all things, before God makes everything right, we will have trouble, just like Jesus said, especially when living extraordinary lives of faith in God. And sometimes trouble isn't just going against the grain and looking a bit different to your friends. Sometimes trouble looks like wandering in the dark and wondering if God is there at all. The Bible tells us that faith is the assurance of things not seen. But for you, does sometimes not seeing feel painful beyond belief? The struggle with the darkness is part of extraordinary lives of faith. Some of us may have never been there. And some of us may never have felt familiar with this moment of Elijah's life, but the emotional, spiritual, and mental darkness Elijah is wading through is not exclusive to those suffering with depression and anxiety. However circumstantial, darkness in your life may not manifest itself in this exact way. It may look like the ranting and the raging against God that Job does when he's suffering, when everything has been taken away from him. In the book of Job, Job cries out to God. It could look like that. It could look like the meaninglessness in Ecclesiastes where we're ashes to ashes and dust to dust and life is meaningless and there's nothing new under the sun. Or it could look like the avoidance and running away of Jonah. Maybe the reason you've never felt like this and the reason um, the way darkness manifests itself in your life is just to run away, get as far away from God and as far away from the world as you possibly can. The struggle in the darkness is part of the extraordinary life. It is not an exception or a disqualification from living an extraordinary life of faith. So all of us can lean in and learn from this moment in Elijah's story. All of us who are trying to learn about living an extraordinary life of faith. So there are a few things that Elijah suffers with, particularly that I think we can draw out to better understand our struggle with the darkness. First of all, God doesn't speak the same way as he has done previously. In fact, you could say he doesn't speak at all in this particular story at the beginning. So before this particular chapter, everything Elijah has done so far has been at the prompt of the word of the Lord. So it says says things like the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, go to this place. The word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, talk to this person. And the word of the Lord tends to be like instructions or challenges or particular insight or answers. And all of a sudden, when Elijah, at this very beginning of this passage, when Elijah gets this threat from Jezebel, he's stuck. And God, there's no like word of the Lord. God doesn't seem to say a word. So there are different things that could be happening. Maybe it's that Elijah isn't listening. Maybe Elijah's being disobedient. Or it could be that God literally doesn't say anything at this moment. And I don't think we know the answer. I said earlier, this is a, is a story of unanswerable questions, and I think this is one of them. But we can see that later on, God takes incredible fatherly care of Elijah. And that isn't like a signifier of a cold withdrawal of a harsh God, a critical time in Elijah's life. God doesn't forget Elijah or move on when Elijah asks for God to just kill him. So we know that God isn't punishing Elijah. So we don't know whether God doesn't speak. We don't know whether Elijah just doesn't listen. But we can see from the way that God treats Elijah that it's an unanswerable question, but God is a good God, no matter how you see it. 
we'll look a little bit more how God treats Elijah in a, in a few moments. One of the first things Elijah says is, he says, I am no different from my ancestors. It feels like he's no better than the dead. He's kind of echoing something. I think he's picked up something of what Jezebel says. And um, when she says she'll make him like one of the slaughtered prophets of Baal, um, because Elijah's distinct purpose on earth, his calling to bring the nation of Israel back to God, um, seems like it's just come to nothing. It seems like it's just been futile because even after all that massive high of the victory and the glory on Mount Carmel of seeing God come through and the people turn back, the words of Jezebel remind him that he's not quite there. The journey's not over yet. He's not really done it at all. And if anything, his great victory, he could think of it like failure. Have you ever felt like this? I certainly have. Or I felt like I did it all right, or at least I had a go. I listened, I tried to be obedient, I even saw a miracle, or I gave my life to Jesus, or I thought I saw a breakthrough, or I asked for prayer, or I did something brave, but I wake up the next day, and sometimes those words just come in the back of my mind that Jezebel says of, you're no different, you're no different from how you were before, you're no different from the people before you. You're no different from the people around you. You're no different. It might be that you got the guy or you got the girl. You took the job. You aced your degree. You met God in a new way. You encountered him in a different way. You got your healing. You decided to follow Jesus. But the next day, those words still ring. You're not out of the woods yet. And now there's way more at stake. I am no different from my ancestors. May not be, may not be true, but it can still feel like being in the darkness. I am no different from my ancestors. In some ways, Elijah is right because he's not accomplished anything beyond what any other human being could through the power of God. Because an extraordinary life of faith isn't actually possible without God. The amazing things that happen through Elijah are through God. But Elijah falls into the same trap that we do so often. We make this weird sidestep. We get tricked. We get lied to. Instead of being like, I am nothing without God, how secure I can be. We say, I am nothing. Instead of believing that we're nothing without God, we believe that we're just nothing. Elijah complains to God, I have had enough. Elijah has kept going and kept going and kept going through drought and grief and challenge after challenge. He's kept waiting for his breakthrough. He's seen his breakthrough. He's listened for answers. He's kept obeying, obeying even when it seemed pointless or when it seemed dangerous. And now he's reached the end of himself and he's realized he's still not there. And he's like, I don't have anything left. I've had enough. Because the drought's ended, but he's back on the run. Because the dead are raised to life, but now that life seems threatened again. The nation's hearts are turned back to God, but he's still not quite there yet. What about you? How long have you kept going? How many times have you dragged yourself to your feet to start again? So how does God respond? 
God literally nudges Elijah awake as the angel of the Lord. And um, so scholars talk about the angel of the Lord as being like a physical bodily manifestation of God appearing. Um, so it makes it so that God can like act like a human, like speak and touch and bake bread, um, which is quite a nice touch. Um, and um, so lots of scholars say that. Um, so lots of scholars say that um, actually the angel of the Lord is like the appearance of Jesus before his time, which is how do you even figure that one out? Because it's before he's born, but he's God, so he can do anything. Um, so it's like this physical, like bodily manifestation of God um, appearing to people on earth, and that is so beautiful because God doesn't just send word, get up. He doesn't give instructions of where to go next or directions through the valley of the shadow of death. God literally sits down next to him and he bakes him bread. He doesn't berate Elijah for despairing in his depression. God is not ashamed of Elijah. God does not get tired of Elijah. God is not angry with Elijah. God does not trick Elijah and he doesn't laugh at him. God does not leave Elijah to work it out on his own. He doesn't give him advice and he doesn't avoid him. He bakes for him. The simplicity, the overwhelming wisdom and the majesty of God that he sees us in the worst of places and he doesn't just throw us an empty answer or instruction because he's a better parent than that and he's a better God than that. God bakes for him and all he says to Elijah is get up and eat. The physical care and nurture of God for you and for me is astounding. Do you just need to dwell on that for a minute? That God not only listens to your darkest cry, he not only hears it, he not only answers it, but he wants to care for you. He wants to nurture you. He wants to just give you enough just to rest again. The hands that flung stars into space that could so easily retaliate or humiliate Elijah, nudge him awake to have a snack. And this is all taking place before Jesus. So we live in a privileged time after Jesus came to earth and made it possible for us to know God intimately. Elijah didn't have the Holy Spirit of God living in him as we do, so that God is with us through every breath and through every step. Elijah was fed bread to strengthen him for the journey ahead. But through Jesus, God gives us nourishment that's for our souls, that satisfies the deepest hunger within us every single day. Like Elijah, God may not give you the answers or the instructions. It may feel like he's led you into a dangerous place of disappointment that has forced you to run for your life in fear. And you have had enough, but God is there even in the darkness. He's there. I don't know what you need right now, but he knows I don't know what nourishment your soul is craving and what you're aching for and you're hungering for, but he knows. I don't know where you've run from or where you're running to or where you're supposed to be, but he knows. I don't know when this will end for you. And I don't know whether the darkness will ever lift if you're in that place right now. But he knows. 
God is leading you to a new place and preparing you for it. I don't know if you'll ever be in this place that Elijah sits in, but I know an extraordinary life, one lived in faith and walking with God, meets the darkness head on. And even in the black, pitch black of despair, faith speaks to darkness and it speaks to God. Even in words that seem wrong or inappropriate or shocking to the people that you love most, But God knows. He gets it. He gets that the journey is too much for you right now, like he says to Elijah. And he knows that one day maybe it will feel like too much, even if it doesn't right now. Because he knows that we are dust. He knows that we are here one day and we are gone the next in comparison to him. He knows our weakness and yet he still leads us on. God leads Elijah on into a new encounter with him. Notice that God doesn't give Elijah food for the first time and then he's like, come on, crack on, we've got stuff to do. He allows him to fall asleep again and rest. He then wakes him up again and he feeds him again. And even then when he strengthens him for the journey ahead, the journey ahead isn't, right, come on, let's get back on track because you've got loads of work to do turning the nation of Israel back to me. He's like, no, you're going to have 40 days and 40 nights of fasting and wandering in the wilderness. Because you may be out of the pitch black, but you may not be out of the wilderness just yet. And so that's just a baby step. God is preparing you not just to get back to work, but he's preparing you for the next thing with him and the next encounter with him and the next time that you can be strengthened by him. He is so kind to us. And then even after that, God speaks to Elijah in a new way in the cave. When he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Then what follows, which we'll hear about next week, is God speaking and, we, and Elijah experiences God's presence in a new way which refreshes him. And only then does God say, go back. But there are so many steps in between. God prepares Elijah and he prepares us so patiently, step by step, for meeting him in a new way. He doesn't often do quick fixes because he's a better parent than that. Because he wants us to figure it out with him at our own pace. So maybe you just need enough to rest. Maybe you just need enough to wander in the wilderness. Or maybe you need enough to hear from him in a new way before you go back to where he's calling you. I don't know where this has landed with you. You might be in the kind of darkness in the dark place that Elijah is in. You might know someone in that place. Struggling with the darkness might be a daily battle for you. You might have never felt like this, but you want to live an extraordinary life that could lead you down the path that winds through the valley of the shadow of death, whatever that looks like. This is something that's intensely personal but it's also something that God has put us in this community to work through together I don't have all the answers you may have noticed and so I very much on purpose left this hanging in midair in faith that God will give us all enough to strengthen us for the journey ahead just as he did for Elijah so there are two ways we're going to respond There's only so much that I can actually say on this and work through on this. So the the first thing we're going to do is we're going to spend some time listening to the Holy Spirit individually. 
And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God who lives in us and is with us and speaks to us. And we want to see what he has to say to each of us. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to share bread and water together, just as God gave Elijah bread and water to give him enough for the journey, to strengthen him for the journey ahead, whether it was just to rest, whether it was just to wander in the wilderness, whether it was to prepare him to hear him in a new way, or whether it was to send him back to where he was called to be. But we're going to do that in a bit, and I'll I'll, um, talk you through that in a minute or two. So the first thing we're going to do is the band are going to play. You can stay seated for a little bit. You can stand and join in. But just ask the Holy Spirit, where am I in this story? What is it you want to say to me? Are you asking me to get up and eat? What nourishment are you giving me, God? What are you strengthening me for? 